Today, we begin a series that's taken all year to get to. Um, if you're with us at the beginning of the year, we said we were devoting a year exploring what it meant to live into authentic community. And the first half of the year, we said we would, it would kind of feel like it's going slow because we were, we were trying to build the inner capacities to have some hard conversations on difficult topics that would come up the second half of the year. Well, we're here now, and uh, today we begin a series on race that we are calling The Gospel and Race. And that title wasn't just a churchy way of saying we want to talk about race, because sometimes people throw gospel for everything, like gospel dog raising and gospel, like gospel everything, right? That's not what this is. Um, what we are really going to be talking about during the series is the gospel and how racism gets in the way of the gospel reaching all the way into the sinful parts of us and our society. So what we're talking about is the gospel. Now, if you are new here, it's going to get intense in this church really fast for you. So just like, hang on, this is the beginning of a long conversation that we're going to be having around this topic. Before we go any further, allow me to clarify some expectations. Did you see what I did there? Okay, good. Clarify some expectations, as we talked about in our Emotionally Healthy uh, Relationship series. Here's some expectations that I have of you that I want to make uh, conscious and verbal to you. And, um, and I hope that you agree with them. If you don't, uh, you have to. <laughs> Before you disagree or want to debate this topic with me or anyone else in this church, I'm expecting that our ground rules for having conversations around here are both the Difficult Conversations Lecture and the Emotionally Healthy Relationships series. And the reason why I say that is because if you can't listen well, if you haven't explored your own family of origin, you don't know how to have a difficult conversation, then what I want to do is I want to humbly request that you start there first, learn that, and then it would really be good to have a conversation and debate. I expect that you've done the work on how to have these conversations, because here's why. It's my hope to make real progress on this and other very important topics. So we have to do the work of having these conversations well. So if you're just jumping into this thing right now, you're like, oh, I want to talk about this, and I want to debate this, and I have feedback and all this other stuff, go back, before you do, go back and listen to those teachings, go back and do the Difficult Conversations lectures on our website, and then let's have a conversation. Another expectation I have is that what it means to be a part of this community is that you stay put and grapple with this content. Don't just bail when it gets hard or you feel misunderstood or you feel like this conversation is getting way too politically charged or triggering for you. You might need a timeout, but please don't bail out. The last expectation is, and I'm deeply aware that those who feel marginalized and sinned against in the area of race, there's tension here, but I'm going to ask that we carry the expectation of grace. I expect us to make, make mistakes in this process. People will more than likely say things that other people will think are racist or maybe even racially prejudiced. We may be offended during this series or during the conversations that happen from this series. We need grace and compassion in the family of God. Remember, we are all here by grace and we need grace to transform into what God desires us to be. So today's sermon is called What We Talk About When We Talk About Race. 
and I'll be defining terms so we all know what we're talking about in this series. So this is the beginning of a conversation. So would you bow your heads with me, and let's pray. Lord, first, I want to um, submit all of my own capacities to you, my, my mind and my heart, uh, my voice, my, 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 all, everything in me. I want to submit to you and ask that you would anoint me. Um, I, I desperately need your help, especially uh, navigating these, these waters here. I want to pray for our church and the things that are even coming up when we even say that we're talking about this subject. And we come from all different sides and all have a story and a background and all of that stuff. And I just pray we would all sit under your scriptures, your spirit, and truth, God. And you would hit us with that in a way that it begins to transform us. And I pray, God, as it pertains to this area, what we know not may you teach us. What we have not, may you give us, and what we are not, may you make us. In Christ's strong name, amen. Amen. Now, I imagine there are several questions you have as we enter into a series on race. Questions like, why are we doing a series on race? Or maybe, where are you going with all of this? Where are you trying to go with a series on on race? Or what kind of church is this turning into when we start to talk about social things like race and not things like the Bible? Or is this church turning into a political church? Because I really like that we didn't talk about political things at this church that much. Now, these are all very valid questions, and I know we all get triggered in different ways, and maybe this is what does it for you. I can see people saying, Dave, you should t just teach the Bible. Don't try to teach on sociology or U.S. History or, history or even get political. That's not why I come to this church. I come to this church to hear God's word taught, so maybe stay in your lane. And I hear that. I hear that. You don't have to send me that email. I've already gotten it. So <laughs> at the very heart of the gospel is the issue of ethnicity. Before the early church started debating Christ's divinity the Trinity, atonement, or whatever, it wrestled with the implications of the gospel on the race relationships in their sociological context. Actually, we have one account of Paul confronting Peter because he was acting in a racially prejudiced way. And when Paul confronted him, he said Peter wasn't living in line with the truth of the gospel. See, to live in line with the truth of the gospel is what I, as a preacher, before God, try and teach you every single week. And that topic, living in line with the truth of the gospel, since the beginning of the church as we know it, has made the issue of ethnicity and race one of the main implications of what it means to live in line with the truth of the gospel. So this is at the core of the gospel. This is a gospel issue. It's not about r simply race. It's about the gospel. Well, then having said that, you might say, well, then what took you so long? And that too is a good question. Why are we just talking about this now? The church has been around for 10 years. Why are we just talking about this now from the pulpit? Why are we just doing a series right now on race? Well, I think I've taken for granted that our eldership is and has been a multi-ethnic, multi-racial group. 
and that our church has been technically multi-ethnic from the beginning. For example, our elders, I'm Latino and a quarter Asian. My mom is Mexican from Mexico, and my dad is half Mexican, half Chinese. Tariq is Egyptian. His parents are both Egyptian. Kevin is black. Parents both African-American. Wilson is Chinese. Parents both Chinese. And Joe, our token white guy, is, <laughs> is South African. Our staff is also ethnically diverse and multiracial and has always been that way. And like I said, our church is technically multi-ethnic from our all-church survey. And what I mean by technically multi-ethnic, sociologists use the term multi-ethnic when a church reaches this benchmark, the 80-20 rule. That means one ethnic group cannot make up more than 80% of the church or worshiping community. For Christian churches in America, only 2.5% of Protestant churches qualifies as multi-ethnic. Our church is a multi-ethnic church. We are technically, according to the survey, multi-ethnic. But that alone will no longer do. See, I want to be a part of a church where we are peacemakers. We learned last week that people who avoid conflict and difficult but necessary conversations are not peacemakers. They are false peacemakers. See, real peacemakers disrupt false peace and do the hard work of moving towards reconciliation. That's our biblical mandate. That's the tradition of Jesus to disrupt, and I hope to disrupt false peace pastorally, but still to disrupt, disrupt false peace and move towards reconciliation. And there is no greater healing and peacemaking work to be done in our nation than around race. And what that requires for us is that we disrupt some false peace. And we, as followers of Jesus, should be the place where Christ's kingdom has come and his will is being done in this area as it is in heaven. Now, you might ask, well, what is it going to be like in heaven? Revelation 5.9, when the Lamb, when Christ is revealed in Revelation, it says, and they sang a new song, saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. The heavenly vision is a multi-ethnic, multi-racial reality where we are all together reigning on the earth. That's the heavenly vision. That's what in San Francisco as it is in heaven means. That is what we must start working towards today. But for that to happen, we have to do a few things. For that reality to start breaking into the here and now, we have to do a few things. A few things that the gospel has done since the beginning. And I want to start doing tonight. That is, we have to name walls and we have to tear down walls. We have to name some walls that divide our nation, our, 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 our city, and even our church, and we have to start tearing these walls down in Jesus' name. In, in Ephesians 2, we're going to do more in-depth study on Ephesians 2 next week, but in Ephesians 2, Paul is naming the walls that divide and showing how Christ tears them down. And he says this in his conclusion, Ephesians 2.11, Therefore, 
Remember that formerly you were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he has put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit." Paul here is naming the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, a wall that you and I today would call racist prejudice, hostility between two groups of people that were different. Paul names the wall, the wall of hostility. He names the things that divide, and then he says that the gospel tears these walls down. Jesus literally in his flesh tore these walls down. And over and over again, the gospel has to name these walls that we put up and tear them down, name them and tear them down. And this remains true today. With gospel motivation and gospel power, we must not be afraid to name the walls, the walls we don't often see, especially if you are part of the dominant white culture. And we have to do the work, the gospel-motivated work of tearing those walls down. That's the hope of this series. Our hope is to see the walls, to start naming the walls, to start being aware of the walls of racism or racialization or cultural identity, and then with gospel power, work to tear them down in our own hearts, in our own community, in our own city, and in our world. So tonight, let's start naming some walls. Okay, what I'm about to do and dive into right now may be difficult for some of you to hear. It isn't easy to ask critical questions about our country's origin and about our own family of origin. During these next moments, you may feel frustrated or defensive or angry or sad or defeated or overwhelmed. If you do, I hope you use that as an opportunity to embrace tension and discomfort because transformation rarely comes easy. So what are we talking about when we talk about race? It's best, I think, to talk about race in contrast to ethnicity. Ethnicity refers to the way people identify with each other based on commonalities and distinctives like language and history, ancestry, nationality, customs, cuisine, and art. Ethnicity is what you get back when you do a 23andMe or Ancestry.com DNA test. It traces back your ethnicity. Example, when my wife got her 23andMe results, it didn't say 100% white. That's not what ethnicity is. It said French and Eastern European, etc. That's ethnicity. But race is different. Race is a social construct, not found in our blood, but put there by God, not put there by God, sorry, but created by humans. Race is a social construct, not found in our blood, not put there by God. It's actually put there by us. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. There was a time 
when white people weren't white people. They were German and Scottish and British and Russian and French and Italian and so on. And to try to see them at that time through a single racial lens would have been inconceivable. But the colonization of America by Europeans changed everything. Before that time, race as we know it did not exist. What happened is what Brian Stevenson, the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative, coined as the narrative of racial difference. That is, differences in race were assigned value and worth. A hierarchy was established based on racial differences to make room for two horrific historical realities, slavery and the annihilation of Native people. Race or racial difference is a social construct designed to grant value to some and not to others. It was at this time during the colonization of America that ethnic cultural distinctives such as German and British and Italian and so on began to be de-emphasized and white people began to be seen as a collective group who were inherently superior to people of color, specifically black slaves and brown native people. The consequence of this meant that some people were seen as superior and others were inferior. Some were seen as human and others were seen as less than human. Race as a social construct was a necessary theory to make white Christian people feel comfortable with their ownership of other human beings and their attempted extinction of native people groups. How else can you, with an understanding of Genesis 1 and 2 and the gospel of Jesus, quote-unquote, being Christian, justify the removal of people from their land and the enslavement of people based on the color of their skin? The only way you can do that is you must make them less human than you. And this is exactly what we see happen in our history. For example, the Declaration of Independence, which you will hear a lot of coming up on July 4th, says this. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This is a noble vision, at least for men, right? A noble vision. It even has the words like, creator, like we're created equal. I mean, this is Imago Day. When you read this, you're like, oh my gosh, this was kind of like a Christianish nation. Like they believed in creator. They believed that we're created. We believe that we're created equally. This is, this is, kind, of, this is kind of noble. However, the description of people indigenous to the land was not so kind or promising. At the bottom of the Declaration of Independence, it says this, the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages, whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. According to the Declaration of Independence, Native Americans were dehumanized as merciless savages who stood in the way of westward expansion. How can you justify the genocide of a group of people who were here before you in a land that you wanted to inhabit, the only way to do that is you have to dehumanize them. You have to write that in your laws, that all men are created equal and you are, these are savages, they're not men. 
You have to do that. You have to dehumanize them. How else can you wipe out a whole people group? Because this is not how God sees humanity. That is not how the Imago Dei doctrine plays itself out. How do you justify enslaving people based on the color of their skin? You have to do the same thing. And this is splashed across all the, pa- all the pages of our U.S. Constitution as well. Actually, it says in our Constitution, during the height of slavery, it was written, Article 1, Section 2, Paragraph 3, it says this about people of African descent. Representatives and district taxes shall be apportioned among the several states which may be included within this union according to the representative numbers, which shall be determined by adding the whole number of free persons, including those brought to service for, the, for a term of years and excluding Indian non-taxed three-fifths of all other persons. This is the three-fifths compromise. You've heard about this. This is saying that African Americans were considered three-fifths human. Think about that. White people, 100% human. Black people, only three-fifths human. Now, someone might say, well, Dave, that's how our founders tried to negotiate the tax system. It didn't really have to do with their value. It just had to do with tax systems. That's how they had to do it because some in the, in the South had more slaves than others and would have thrown off the whole tax system, so they had to do this. Okay, so then you're saying that white people and people of color were seen as the same and there was no historical dichotomy between black and white life. What about the legal principle referred to as the one-drop rule? Any person with even one drop of sub-Saharan African blood was to be considered black making the message very clear by law. Whites were the superior race, and even a single drop of inferior blood contaminated the purity of whiteness. Okay, let's step back for a second and just take a breath and review. At one time, people were German, Italian, British, and so on. But in this new world of America, they became white, and superior to people of color. Thus was born the ideology of race. So when we talk about race, we are talking about an ideology, an ideology that is so deeply embedded in the imagination of America that it's impossible to see life without it. Race in our country and racism in our country is water. This is the water that we're swimming in. There's no way around it if you live in America. Jamar Tisby says this in his wonderful book, The Color of Compromise. Race is a social social construct. There is no biological basis for the superiority or the inferiority of any human being based on the amount of melanin in his or her skin. The development of the idea of race required the intentional actions of people in the social, political, and religious spheres to decide that skin color determined who would be enslaved and who would be free. Over time, Europeans, including Christians, wrote laws and formed the habits that concentrated power in the hands of those they considered white while withholding equality from those they considered black. Race is a socially constructed system based on skin color to give inherent value to some people and not to other people. That's race. Now, if that's race, you might ask, what is racism? Racism is a system of advantage based on race. You can't and I can't get around racism in America. It is the water that we swim in. And I'll talk more about this in two weeks from today.
Now, what I want to do is here, step back. Let's step back again and name this wall now. I just, I just kind of tried to name a wall. I tried to make you see a wall. And let's call this wall American history. So we have to name the walls that divide us. And this wall is American history. That's what we're trying to name this wall. Okay, what, what, we, in order for the gospel to work, we have to like, see the walls, name the walls, and with the gospel power, tear down these walls, right? And so let's name this wall. We'll call this wall American history. And by history, I don't mean it's in our past, like it's over with and it has no, has no bearing on our present. No, that's not, that's, not, that's not true. That won't do. Remember the sermon from a few weeks ago about family of origin? I had a lot of feedback on it, how helpful it was for people. Like, oh my gosh, I, I knew that my family of origin factored into it, but I didn't know how biblically it worked its, its way out and it was really helpful for me. Okay, so let's remember this here from family of origin a few weeks ago. We said that our families have a way of living inside of us that we are not just an autonomous self, that we are impacted by what's going on in our family going back a few generations, that we have history in our blood and in our bones, and that patterns and whole life scripts have been passed down to us and we live out of them today without even being conscious of it. The same thing is true about our culture's history and our nation's history. It lives inside of us. It lives in our systems. It lives in our city. It lives in our economics. It lives in our education. It lives in us. James Baldwin has said, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. I don't care how woke or how non-racist you think you are, this lives in your bones. Actually, in my research, especially a great book I read called White Fragility. The author of that book points out that progressive people are some of the worst carriers of racism and implicit bias because they don't think they are. And, the, and ignorance is what makes racism so insidious. And so to all my woke millennial San Franciscan friends who think, oh, this does not pertain to me, I cannot wait to send this to my friend who lives in the South. <laughs> this is you. You carry it in your bones, and it's so, and the worst part is that we think because we're San Franciscan, because we're so progressive that it doesn't live in us, the quicker that you and I, as progressive San Franciscans, quote unquote, the quicker you and I can notice it in our own hearts and do gospel work to tear that down, the better. So even if you consider yourself super woke or whatever, this, that won't do. We have to notice these things that they live in our bones, and we have to do the, the work of tearing them down. So this lives in our bones, and we as followers of Jesus must name our history, our own history, if we ever want to see the effects of it torn down with gospel motivation. I think Daniel Hill, uh, a white pastor, I forget where he's at, somewhere I think um, on the East Coast, wrote a, a really great book called White Awake, clever title. And he says this. He says, the system of race that we've created in America is fraught with sin. And it has, play, it has played a powerful role in shaping the sense of identity of every human being who has lived here. Therefore, it would be naive for devoted followers of Jesus to believe that they can pursue the transformation of identity in Christ without also acknowledging the power of sin as evidenced by the impact of race. 
Our old self has been profoundly shaped by race. We can't grow into a, the new and, unredeem, and new and redeemed self without naming the presence of that sin, confessing the ways it has impacted us, and doing all we can to break free of its former power. I think that's so wise. Like we think, oh, I'm new in Christ, I don't have to deal with that. No, no, the, the, the very thing that you are in Christ, you have to name all the false things that you've lived under and put them under the obedience of Christ. That is the Christian work of living into your new identity. And we must, if we're American, we must do this with race. We have to name our history. The other wall that we have to name is our complicity. And this one stings a little bit more in the church to say this in the church. We have to name our complicity church. I'm talking about the American church, which I am a part of, which I carry on in, in this generation, and you do as well. We have to name our complicity. I'm speaking specifically of the church in America, which Rally San Francisco is a part of. We have to name our complicity with race and racism. See, from the 1600s to present day, the American church has been complicit in very specific and pivotal ways that allow racism to survive and embed itself in our society. You are typically told that it was the church and, 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 and Christian people that worked to take down slavery and segregation and overt acts of racism in this country. And to some degree, that is true, depending on the stream of church you're talking about, but it's also true and probably more true that the church has had more to do with the formation of slavery, segregation, and racism before it ever did anything to tear it down. And we have to own that. In the 1600s, the church debated if slaves even had souls and could receive the gospel to be baptized. In 1667, many slave owners who were Christian did not want the gospel to be preached to their slaves because there was a long-standing custom in England that Christians, being spiritual brothers and sisters, could not enslave one another. And if slaves converted to Christianity, since Christianity had inherent ideas, ideas of, of hum, human equality embedded in its teaching, would slaves not begin to demand their freedom and social equality? So slave owners did not want their slaves to be evangelized. But missionaries were putting pressure on slave owners to evangelize their slaves. So the compromise? A new Virginia assembly law that was enacted in September 1667 called the Key Slavery Statute, and it said this. It is enacted and declared by this grand assembly that the authority and the authority thereof that the, that the conferring of baptism does not alter the condition of the person as to his bondage or freedom. So missionaries and pastors told newly converted slaves to be content with their spiritual liberation and to remain slaves, obedient slaves. Now, I want to do a side note here because I think this is important. Slavery in America was an altogether completely different kind of slavery than we see in history and in the Bible. In most cases, slaves could legally marry, own property. They worked for a specific term, not a lifetime. Slaves in other cultures were not born into servitude. They might offer their labor in order to pay off a debt or a land debt they, or if they were captured in war. Slavery was not exclusively a matter of race or ethnicity in other cultures either. Actually, the first 80 to 100 years in America's history, there were both black and white slaves. It didn't start, it didn't start until the, to the, the late 1600s to be specifically a race thing. American slavery was an altogether historically different thing than slavery before it. 
So I share the pivotal moment in 1667 because here was the message. Here was the message that was embedded in our nation with, with, the, with the, the complicity of the church. The message that, was, that has imbibed itself insidiously in the imagination of mainly Christians or mainly white Christian evangelicals ever since. And here it is. Preach to the soul, leave the system alone. Preach to the soul of the slave, the soul of the slave owner, the soul of people, but leave the system alone. This happened through the first great awakening. Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, leaders in the great awakening, one of America's greatest revivals, both of these leaders owned slaves. For example, to show you how this this priest of the soul, leave the system alone, worked itself out. George Whitfield, early on in his ministry, denounced slavery. But later on, by the late 1740s, he had purchased a plantation in the South and bought slaves to work in it so that all the profit from this plantation, since he didn't have to pay for labor, could go to supporting a Christian orphanage ministry. He went on to Georgia to petition for slavery and said that, quote, Georgia can never be a flourishing province unless Negroes are employed. And by employed, he didn't mean paid, he meant made use of. The point being, there was a system, a financial, economic, social, political system. Leave the system alone because the system works, but we can use the system for Christian stuff. We could preach to the soul of slaves, but don't mess with the system. We can, we can use the system to support Christian ministry, but don't mess with the system. Let's use the system to our advantage to fund Christian missions. Preach to the soul, leave the system. And so it went from the antebellum era through to the Civil War, from the Jim Crow era through to the Civil Rights Movement, from lynchings to bombings and every other unthinkable thing in between. The church has been complicit in this lie, preach to the soul and leave the system alone. On Good Friday, 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. was jailed in Birmingham, Alabama for leading peace marches and boycotts in Birmingham. He called, King called Birmingham um, the most segregated place in the whole country. While he was in jail, eight white pastors wrote Dr. King a letter published in the newspaper advising him and his team to depart and to let the community handle the race relations for itself. The letter was actually really reasonable. It contended for civil rights, remedies should actually be pursued through the courts instead of boycotts and marches. Actually, it's the reasonableness of the letter that reveals the underlying problem with the church's complicity with racism. Dr. King's response letter, famously known as a letter from Birmingham jail, he writes this, quote, Dr. King says, I have heard numerous religious leaders of the South call upon their worshipers to comply with a desegregation decision because it is the law. But I have longed to hear white ministers say, follow this decree because integration is morally right and the Negro is your brother. In the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the Negro, I have watched white churches stand on the sidelines and merely mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. 
in the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I have heard so many ministers say, those are social issues which the gospel has nothing to do with. And I have watched so many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion which made a strange distinction between bodies and souls, the sacred and the secular. What is Dr. King saying? He is saying, I am tired of hearing since 1667, preach to the soul and leave the system alone. I'm tired of that. But the system is what Jesus came to destroy. Ephesians 2, again, for Christ himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier. If Christ has destroyed the barrier, I would hate to stand before him and to be a part of what, what it meant to rebuild that barrier. He's destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. What is that? What, what Paul is saying is that Jesus in his flesh took in the system that, that were separating two groups of people and in his body destroyed the system. His purpose, why did he destroy the system? Why did he destroy the legal system that divided Jew and Gentile? Why did he do that? His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Jesus is after making a new family, one new family, a new race of people called Christian, called the family of God. And he wanted this so desperately that he allowed the hostility between the Romans and the Jews to be the earthly reason why he was killed and put to death on a Roman cross with a Jewish crowd who yelled, crucify Jesus is that serious about this. He is serious about this one race thing, this one new humanity thing. And what we must do, especially those who live in the dominant culture, and my white family, I'm, 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 I'm speaking directly to you right now. I'm going to ask you to take on the work of listening and doing some work. I'm going to ask you to take on some, some, some reading some thinking, some conversation around this, but mainly to spend time listening. Because as we are part, as people are part of the dominant culture, they have to own the walls that have been put up around us. And, and as I'm a part of the church culture that has been complicit with this, I have to own the walls that have been put up in, through my like spiritual lineage. And we have to name these walls that have been put up around us that have built systems of racism for some to have advantage to the oppression of others. Jamar Tisby, again, in The Color of Compromise, history and scripture teaches us that there can be no reconciliation without repentance, there can be no repentance without confession, and there could be no confession without truth. So I'm going to ask you to start doing some work. So where do we go from here? Well... I think to enter into these conversations well, we have to do some reading. We have to do some listening. The two books that I want to recommend to you, places of where to start with this, um, is 
the, the book by Jamar Tisby, we have it on sale outside in the foyer called The Color of Compromise, and then the book by Daniel Hill called White Awake. Now, obviously, if you were, um, this is for, both of these are for everyone. I found both of these books insanely helpful and incredibly um, well-written. Um, if you are part of our white family, White Awake would be a great book to start with. It's a white pastor speaking to um, white dominant culture, saying we need to be people who move forward in, in multi-ethnic churches. Our church is multi-ethnic, and we need to embrace that fully. We need to fully embrace that our church is a multi-ethnic church and want to see expressions of our multi-ethnicity work its way out in every part of our church. Color of Compromise is a book about how um, the, the church in America has been complicit with racism. It is a hard book to read because it's so heavy, but he writes it so well that it's not that hard to read, if that makes sense. Lastly, we live in a culture of outrage. I think when uh, historians and scholars look back uh, of the, the, the time in history that we're living right now, they will probably coin this, this, this time in our history the, the, the culture of outrage, which means that we, when we hear something like this, like you just heard, our common cultural response is outrage. We want to look with disgust on our country. We want to hate our current administration. We may even want to outrage against the pastor for saying this kind of stuff in the church. You may be outraged against me, and you're like, Dave, America, love it or leave it, bro. You can't do this. Like, that might be the outrage that you're feeling right now. But what outrage does is pushes the problem out there. It's their fault. It's the fault of the pastor for talking about this stuff in church. It's the problem of the current president. It's the problem of white people. It's the problem of policy. It's the problem of economics. The problem is out there. That's what outrage does. Outrage is building a platform and community on what you hate. But all that is doing is allowing you to avoid what must happen inside you first. We must all begin with personal confrontation. I think that there is a place for outrage and there's a place for outcry. There is a place for it. And I want us to get to that place. But before we start doing that out there, we must be confronted in here, all of us. We can so quickly move to, I know there's people in here that want to move immediately. What are we doing about this? You know what we're doing about this? We're sitting in this moment and we're lamenting. We're owning our history and we're repenting and lamenting over it. And we might sit here for a while and we're going to learn it, and we're going to be aware of, uh, we're going to be aware of it. But what are we doing? That's what we're doing right now. Some of us want to, to go on to the next thing, or, or, or outrage, or trying to figure out the plan to solve this thing. Let's just first let the Holy Spirit confront us. We must sit with how the Holy Spirit wants to confront us today, about what we believed, about how we see the world that is not in line with how Jesus sees the world. And we have to lament. I've done a lot of lamenting. And we have to repent. Let's do that now. Would you bow your heads with me?